Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be a lawyer, Nick Nikas, the president and general counsel of the Bioethics Defense Fund. And I think he's going to be the first lawyer we've ever had on the show. I was just thinking that. We're branching out. We are reaching out to the peripheries, <laughs> as Pope Francis has said. But we're going to travel first to my old home, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and talk about some news-related items. So we're going to play an audio clip, Tom, in just a second. But I wanted to sort of set it up. This is from a lawmaker in the Virginia House of Delegates who had proposed a bill that would allow abortions through the end of the third trimester. Now, interestingly, Virginia already had that bill that would allow in the state law, which I think is not very well known. But this lawmaker's bill would have made it easier, require fewer physicians to sign off on uh, end-of-pregnancy abortion. And so during this, uh, Democratic delegate Kathy Tran, she's presenting to uh, a committee which is head by Majority Leader Todd Gilbert. And you'll hear uh, Leader Gilbert asking her questions about the bill. And so I think we'll let, uh, we'll let our listeners listen in, and then we'll talk about it where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth. She has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth. Would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman would I understand would make that. that. I'm asking point. if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that, yes. To which I think we all collectively say, wow, this just seems like something that people say happens that doesn't really happen. Uh, and in fact, it was interesting as I was tracking this issue, social media, a lot of people were saying, oh, you're making a big deal. It's really nothing. Until I think you see or hear that clip, then you realize it's really a lot more than nothing. Who was saying it was nothing? You know, people on the on the so-called pro-choice side were saying you're grandstanding, you're sensationalizing. Uh, this is this is really nothing. Uh, in reality, it was really something. As the the outrage that came from it, and then the bill did not pass. Interestingly, thanks be to God, it didn't pass. I I was amazed by the committee chairman who was able to keep his composure when asking the question. But it sounded as though he was sort of almost dumbfounded, didn't it? He, oh, yes. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't quite get his brain around the fact that she was proposing a bill that allow you to destroy a child in the process of labor. But then the governor of Virginia even made it worse after that. Yes, he did. And he's a pediatric <laughs> neurologist who takes care of some kids with some awful um, birth defects that affect the central nervous system. Yeah, it was a remarkable a couple of days, I think, on the news when it comes to abortion. Well, because he even went further than uh, an abortion right up till the moment of birth during dilation. He said they could decide after the baby is born, if it's born alive, to have a discussion. Well, a discussion about what? What they're going to have for lunch? I don't think so. No, what to do with this child. Uh, and interestingly, there was a, a, a video clip of him being on a radio show. Uh, not this one, but we could have him on as a guest, <laughs> I suppose. And the, the, the host of the show didn't even challenge him on that. They just let it go. They, they didn't even say, wait a minute, Governor. You mean a child is born alive that needs help and a, a physician and a mother are going to decide if it gets help. Uh, I, I think it represents a new low and sort of uh, 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 the discussions on this on this topic. Well, what this reminds me of is back in the old Roman Empire, the the male head of the family, the paterfamilias or the father, could decide after a baby was born, they put the baby on the ground. And it wasn't legally a person until the father picked it up again. So now we're going back to that law, except that Virginia would also give that same right to the mother to decide if it's alive if it's a person or not after birth. Yeah, it, these, these are interesting times, as they say. Well, let's move north and talk about what's going on in the great state of New York. While that didn't pass in Virginia, something did pass in New York, and it was uh, ironically signed 
uh, on the same day as we commemorate the Roe v. Wade decision. But it w- really wasn't irony, was it? I think that was all planned. Oh, it certainly and, and was planned. It was kind of like poking us in the eye, I think, from uh, the other side there. Reproductive Health Act. And the playing with words here is just so incredible because there's nothing reproductive about the Health Act. It's anti-reproductive, isn't it? Yeah, it's not producing anything other than uh, a deceased child. And so they basically removed in this act any possible protections for a child in the womb. Really, any reason, any time, up until birth, the baby could be aborted. You know, it amazes me, uh, tries I may to get in the head of those who would disagree with me about abortion. It's almost possible to understand they could be ill-informed and think that a nine-week baby is not a baby. Yes, we're talking about maybe a 40 or a 41-week child that in a matter of seconds, you define it as a pre-birth. Seconds later, we define it as now born. I just, don't, I just don't understand, for lack of a better phrase, how someone could get behind the destruction of a newborn child and not call it infanticide. I don't know if it's the old thing about uh, putting a frog in water and boiling it slowly. I don't even know if that's true. But I think people get so used to their belief that once they're hanging on to something, they think that any step, anything against that belief means that everything has to fall. So they just keep following it to its logical conclusion. And what I've seen in life is that there is no natural limit with evil. Once you step into the realm of evil, it's never satisfied. Oh, we just want this. Well, once they have this, then they want that. And they keep pushing the fence, the boundary, whatever it is, further and further. I think this is what we're seeing here. I mean, interestingly, in all the video clips that I saw of that bill signing in New York, people were cheering and they looked elated as though we had just passed some meaningful uh, piece of legislation that was actually going to help people. Maybe they were happy to see so many uh, New York landmarks lit up in pink, <laughs> which, which the governor ordered to do. You know, this bill does allow abortion right up to the point of birth, and it doesn't impose any objective medical standard to uh, limit somebody from doing it. So it, it truly is for any reason. And they eliminated calling unborn children human persons, even if that unborn child is killed as a result of someone attacking the pregnant mother. Right. Yeah, that that marks a step in the reverse. And then they were very proud of the fact that they've moved on now from physicians uh, as abortion providers to allow and empower, as they would say, non-physicians to do abortions, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and certified nurse midwives as abortionists now. And uh, it's interesting. This came up when I was talking to our co-host, Andrew Mullally, this past weekend. He went down to the state legislature here in Indiana a week or two ago testifying on a bill that would you know, protect conscience rights. And somebody asked him, well, why do we need to protect these physician assistants and nurse practitioners? And he said, look at the New York bill. Yeah, it's just remarkable. You could find yourself in New York being forced to participate without any kind of conscience protection. And the governor of New York, himself a baptized Catholic, has often quoted that he is standing with and that we should stand with Pope Francis but it's only on those things where he wants to stand with Pope Francis. And the Pope is obviously very strongly against any such harm to babies in the womb or out of the womb. You know, it's interesting. I think the entire abortion discussion comes down to personhood. And and that is to say, when is the baby a person? Because I think most right-minded people would say, you can't kill an innocent person. But those who are proposing to destroy these babies through abortion, in their hearts, don't believe that it's a person. I'm not sure how we got so mixed up in how we define a person as a person, Uh, but it seems to boil down to that. Um, These are not people that are insane and illogical. These are educated, thinking people, but I think they're just wrong on what a person is. Oh, and that is the fundamental problem with most of the moral issues in our society today, is what is a person? What is, you know, what we call anthropology, the the study of what a a person is? And, uh, you know, like Dr. Seuss said, a person's a person, no matter how small. (laughs) Well, in in all seriousness for our listeners, uh, I think both the Virginia bill and the New York law that passed is is a great reminder that we need to pay attention. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to live in states like Indiana, uh, where you and I live, 
that are still protecting the unborn. But it's a fight every minute of every day. Uh, evil knows no bounds. Evil doesn't take a vacation. And we uh, have got to stand up for these children because no one else is. And our guest tonight is going to help us understand how we can you know, fight for laws that support what we believe are moral actions. Uh, and what is the relationship between law and morality? Mm. But before we go to him, I do have a related medical trivia question of the day to our topic. In 1970, four U.S. states legalized abortion on demand. That was the first time in the history of our country, while several states had already legalized abortion in very limited ways three years earlier. But which of these five states that I list were not one of the four to legalize abortion on demand in 1970. The five states to choose from, one of these did not legalize it, Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, California, or New York. Which one of those five did not legalize abortion on demand in 1970? We'll be right back after the break with lawyer Nick Nikas. And now it's time for our interview with today's guest on law and morality will be Nick Nikas. Nick is the first lawyer to join us on Dr. Doctor. He's the co-founder, president, and general counsel of the Bioethics Defense Fund. On their website, they say they create winning arguments for life, and they certainly do. Nick has organized and participated in oral arguments prepared for attorneys who have argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in some of the uh, big-name cases, Stenberg versus Carhartt, McCullen versus Coakley. He's a Notre Dame undergrad and master's graduate, uh, law school at Arizona State University. He's a father of five grown children, lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and he's here with us today. Nick, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Tom, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, the intersection of law and morality is, is huge in today's society. You know, we often hear people say, well, you, you can't impose your morality in laws, can you? Uh, how do you answer that question? Well, the first thing I ask them is to tell me, what is your definition of morality and what is your definition of law? Because if you have a proper definition of law and a proper definition of morality, you understand that law codifies morality. Without, if a law is not moral, it's not really a law. To quote uh, St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, an unjust law, an immoral law, is no law at all. It's closer to an act of violence. So uh -huh. all law enforces a morality. It's just whether people will recognize it or not. In our culture, of course, today, people are, are, are very happy to have what looks like a law, has the form of law, but is really much more akin to an act of violence. An act of violence. I've not heard that before, but that is good. And I've always thought it was kind of empty for people to say that you can't legislate morality because that's exactly what laws are. So just by saying a lie so often, people start to believe it and, and stop thinking. How do we get people to start thinking more, Nick? Well, I do a lot of talks in uh, law schools and uh, occasionally in medical school and to doctors' groups and to lawyers' groups. And many times I will start with the example of the Nuremberg trials. Uh -huh. Now, if you recall, your listeners recall, at the end of World War II, the victorious allies, the Americans, the Soviets, the British, the French, the Chinese, tried the Nazi doctors, you know, think Mengele, although he wasn't tried directly right. because he had escaped, the Nazi judges, that is the Nazi lawyers, and the Nazi officers for crimes against humanity, right, for the Holocaust. The yes. Holocaust. Now, everyone who studied history has heard your whole life, you know what the response was. Their response was, you, the victorious allies, can't prosecute us because we were only following, and then, you know, everyone jumps in and says, orders. They know that. We right. Only following orders. Right. And another way of saying that was, we were only following the law of the Third Reich. And then they said, not only did the law not prohibit us from doing it, in some senses, it commanded us to do these things. So on what grounds, if we were following the law, can you prosecute us? Hmm. There's only two responses to that statement. One is that the Nuremberg trials were simply the most egregious form of victor's justice. You know, the Allies won the war, they had the guns, the tanks, and they were going to get their retribution. But there's a more profound understanding of what went on, and I think it's this, that it's not enough to look simply at the enacted positive law, 
when we use the word positive in, in legal terms, it means the enacted law, which you, you think of in code books and legislative sure. enactments in, in cases. But it's not enough to look at that. What you have to do is look at whether those laws were moral or not. So you have an obligation to follow moral laws, but laws that require you to do immorality, you don't have an obligation. And that's because, and, and this is true whether you have faith or not, no matter what your male or female, rich or poor, whatever your ethnic background is, and whatever time in history you, you lived in, there are some things that as human beings who share the same human nature, you have to know. And one of them is, if you take a little girl because she's Jewish and you gas her to death and burn her body, there is no enacted positive law in the history of the world that makes that right. And it was because of that that we executed some of the defendants and jailed others. So no one thinks the Holocaust is good. I could use the example of Dred Scott and slavery. Yes. No one thinks slavery is good. Um, and so the answer is, why not? They were all at one point or another, um, allowed by the positive law, whether it was Germany or the United States when it came to slavery. So you have to look beyond the form of law and ask the question, is it moral? Why? Because human beings are by nature, by their very human nature, moral beings that make moral judgments. Now, in the beginning of the show, uh, Chris Stroud and I talked about this recently passed law, positive law, in uh, New York. The Reproductive Health Act. And there are many people in the country disheartened about this. You, you know, what, what can you say to us to give us hope that we can over, overcome such unjust positive laws? Well, first thing to, to point out is that the pro-life movement for 46 years has been saying that Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, and the case that reaffirmed it 19 years ago, uh, or 19 years after um, Roe came down, all allow abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. So the terrible truth is, and this is something that we've been saying, but I don't think people have really absorbed, is that abortion on demand is what the law of the United States allows all the way until right before birth. Do polls so say that most people do not realize that in America? You know, uh, what has been amazing is that despite the consistent teaching of the pro-life movement that we really have a radical abortion regime, people just didn't want to believe it. And I'll give you an example of why. Besides the fact that the press always misstates what Roe did, I was looking yesterday on Amazon for a book that I recall that Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, wrote, while well, I think she was a sitting justice, called The Majesty of the Law. And on page 45 of that book, she states that Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in the first three months. Now, when you have the press misstating what Roe did, and you have a sitting Supreme Court justice, uh, no wonder people are confused. And so the good news in the midst of this horror is that people are finally getting it. You know, we have a radical abortion regime. And so when they poll people and say, do you support abortion? The answer really should be, um, what do you mean? Maybe people support abortion at some level, but they certainly don't support it for all nine months. It's a right. very, very small percentage. I've read so the that good news is, the support for third trimester abortion is at about 13% of Americans. I read that, too, and I don't know where that statistic comes from, but I'm not surprised. I mean, I mean, the abortion industry is far more radical than the average American. And so the good news is, as bad as this evil was in New York, it's finally waking people up to this truth that we can, that we have this radical abortion regime and we need to start pushing back. So maybe this could be a favor for those of us in, in favor of life. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, God brings good out of all evil. And one of the good things out of this thing is that people are finally, I think finally after 46 years, getting it. Wow, this is really so, so, Nick, what do you think is the relationship between law and morality? Does one drive the other? Do they both go together? Well, on the one hand, I think that it's, it's, it's important to say that, that law is only truly law when it's moral. But law does more than simply codify the morality of a people. It also forms them. So what happened with Roe v. Wade 
for the last 46 years is if it's legal, it's good. This is why we need to eventually have the Supreme Court reverse Roe and send it back to the states, because then they won't think, oh, it's legal in the, in the federal constitution, therefore it must be moral. So you bring up a great point. What does it mean to overturn Roe legally? Because they're not voting on Roe. So how does that work judicially? Well, what it means is that a case has to get to the Supreme Court that, among other issues, raises the question of whether Roe v. Wade and its progeny in the last 46 years, all the abortion jurisprudence of the United States, was in error. Then, ask the court directly, you need to reverse this case, send it back to the states. This is the argument of the late Justice Scalia. Whatever you think about some of the argument, he said, look, the federal constitution doesn't have the word abortion or privacy in it. Therefore, when the federal constitution is silent, this is an issue for the states to decide. Some states may allow it, see New York, California, and other places. Yes. But you don't have to allow it under the federal constitution. And so a reversal of Roe would mean that the case, that abortion doesn't end the next day, but it allows democracy to work and people to uh, express their their concerns in their own legislation. So if we heard in late June that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, it doesn't mean the next day that abortion is going to become illegal everywhere in the country. Right. And in fact, in many states, because of how they've interpreted their state constitution, abortion wouldn't uh, stop at all. And many states that would support pro-life positions would have to enact actual legislation to, to put that into effect. So that's correct. A reversal of Roe simply means it goes back to the states, and then you'd have to fight it out in all 50 states. Now, something comes to mind from uh, senators on the Judiciary Committee who ask uh, potential Supreme Court justices, but do you consider Roe v. Wade settled law? What does the term settled law mean, if anything? Well, I, I think what the uh, senators who asked that question mean, they're, they're trying to trap the nominee right. into saying that, uh, no, it's not settled law. Well, it's clearly not settled. Why? Because after 46 years, the whole country is constantly talking about it. Right. If it was settled law, no one would, would, would bring it up. It would be of interest to some obscure law review article written by a professor that <laughs> uh, never gets written. Okay? But the entire country is constantly talking about abortion. Uh, it's like slavery. slavery. Slavery was a reality, but it wasn't settled. Uh, and uh, neither is abortion. Abortion is not settled law. But what they mean is the court keeps reaffirming there's a right to abortion. But you know what? Um, 46 years in American history is relatively short. The first slave came to the New World in 1619. And the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery was 246 years later. We're in year 46, not year 246. From Plessy versus Ferguson that said separate but equal facilities for blacks and whites was constitutional in 1896, to when it was reversed in Brown versus Board of Education 58 years later, where we're in year 46. That is Not great so perspective. And, and with that, we'll close the first half of this interview, and we'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with our second half of our interview with lawyer Nick Nikis, president of the Bioethics Defense Fund. We were just talking about Roe v. Wade, and, and Nick, why, I guess there are many reasons, but why does Roe v. Wade need to be overturned? Well, besides the obvious that abortion is a, you know, a moral atrocity akin to the evil of slavery and needs to be reversed, you have to understand, I think a person has to understand that when people commonly say Roe legalized abortion, that's not completely accurate. More uh, fully, it constitutionalized the issue. That is, it made it a federal constitutional issue which means that only the federal courts are the final arbiters of whether a state law regulating abortion or trying to prohibit it would be constitutional. One of the reasons you need to reverse Roe is to get the federal courts out of the business of being the National Medical Review Board. (laughs) These are issues appropriate for the states, not for the federal courts. So one thing that frustrates me and, and many of my friends is that states 
legislatures or a referendum will pass something that's pro-life, and then one judge, one lone judge, can stop it from going into effect. Why is that? It just seems so out of proportion. That's a great question, but that's that's why that's the problem with constitutionalizing the ah. issue, making it a federal constitutional claim. Once it becomes a federal constitutional question, then federal judges are the gatekeepers. I always uh, use the example that you know in ancient Rome, the emperor was protected by his Praetorian guard. Well, <laughs> yes. In modern America, the emperor of abortion is protected by the Praetorian guard of the federal courts, and unless you send this issue once and for all out of the federal system back to the states, the federal courts will continue to act as the guard striking down these laws. You think about it, we have 320 million Americans approximately in the country, and five, five people out of 320 million decide the important issues of the day on the court. And the emperors of old would have dreamed, would have loved to have had so much power. Yes. That is a great analogy of why we're so frustrated with the current system. So a state judge could still strike things down once things go back to the state. Yes, yes, a state judge could, but it's a lot easier to pass legislation or amend the state constitution than it is. It's almost impossible to amend the federal constitution. It's only been done relatively few times. So if the federal court or the Supreme Court ultimately decides something, you're pretty much stuck. Whereas in the states, it's a much easier um, opportunity to advance uh, a revision to the state constitution. So if Roe v. Wade was overturned this summer, what would you see happening? Well, you would probably see a breakdown of states that have a radical uh, abortion legislative uh, majority, places like, again, New York. So I think all these states are a sign of actually weakness, even though it's horrible to see New York. I think they realize that the days of Roe and its progeny are numbered, and they're trying to scramble to protect abortion. Uh, But once Roe is sent back to the states, they won't be able to say what the Supreme Court has said or the Constitution says. And I think what you'll see is battles in all 50 states and many states coming up with, I mean, even common sense restrictions are getting struck down. So there's a case before the United States Supreme Court, they might actually rule today, about a case out of Louisiana dealing with admitting privileges. Yes. And so, you know, you would think that that's a non-controversial thing. You'd want whatever uh, people who are doing these uh, operations to have admitting privileges in case they botch the abortion and harm the woman uh, along with the child. But again, the abortion regime has gone so radical that uh, this is seen as, uh, you know, a, a constitutional violation. So what I think you're going to see also is it's not enough just to reverse Roe. You're going to have to reverse specific holdings in Roe, things like the unborn or not persons. So if the Supreme Court reverses Roe, I hope they specifically say, and we reverse that and leave that question to the states. Because now everyone can say, well, the Supreme Court has said the unborn child is not a person. Now, what they meant, what the Supreme Court meant, wasn't that you're not a human being. And states are free right now, even under the abortion regime, to protect human beings in all situations, uh, unborn human beings, in all situations about abortion. So think of all the fetal homicide statutes or the wrongful death statutes that apply to unborn children. Now, something of interest to those of us in healthcare are uh, concerns about being uh, coerced into doing things that we think are immoral. So there's a lot of talk on the federal and state level about Uh, rights of conscience. How do you approach that as a lawyer? Well, I approach uh, the issue of healthcare rights of conscience the same way I do as uh, lawyer rights of conscience. There's a reason that history has uh, looked at both medicine and law as professions. And I talk to uh, medical students or doctors, and when I say, what does it mean to be a profession? You're not a clerk. You don't just fill out the command of your patient, or lawyers don't just simply do whatever their clients say. The point of being a professional is you take a person, you give them lots of education, they apply that with lots of experience, and then why why do you go to a doctor or a lawyer? Why do you pay a doctor or a lawyer, ultimately? You want their judgment, their professional judgment. This is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, this is how you should be treated, this is how you shouldn't be treated. It is the very undermining of the idea of a profession 
to demand that lawyers and doctors become the clerks for their patients and clients. It destroys the very thing that allows them to give good medical practice for the benefit of the patient and good legal advice for the benefit of their client. That is beautiful. I've not heard it put that way before, but that makes so much sense. And a lot of us physicians feel like uh, the government is trying to turn us into vending machines. And that's exactly right. So, so when I speak to, again, uh, doctors and medical students, and I say, I don't know the history of the term provider. But <laughs> we I all like detest it. it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it because if you're a healthcare provider, well, then, of course, people are going to think, provide me whatever I want. An abortion. I want a sterilization. I want you to help me commit a suicide at the end of life. Why not? You're supposed to provide things for me. So that term, I would say, no, I'm not a provider. I'm a professional, and I will exercise my judgment. So you have been involved with some big cases. Tell us about the Carhartt case and partial birth abortion and your involvement with that. Well, you know. Um, Right after Roe v. Wade was reaffirmed in 1992 in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case, a uh, abortionist talked about at a, an abortion conference about a new technique he had created, which came to be known as partial birth abortion, where he would put a child in the breech position, uh, pull the child into the birth canal, except for the head that would be up against the cervix, pat the back of the skull, suck the brains out, I hate to be so graphic, collapse the skull and deliver the baby dead but whole. And this was uh, touted as an advancement for health because you wouldn't have retained parts. Now, even people who said they were identified as pro-choice were appalled by this horrible process. You're in the process of birth. You're no longer pregnant. Right? You can't stop the process. You've, you've initiated birth. And this is, if this is an infanticide, nothing is. Right. And so 30 states, including many people who, in the state legislatures who are pro, uh, would consider themselves pro-abortion, passed these laws. Well, went to the Supreme Court, and, and I was privileged to moot or prepare for the oral argument, the Attorney General of Nebraska, Don Stenberg. But when I got to the case, when I got, this is my first time in the Supreme Court listening to a a uh, oral argument. We had filed a brief in support of the partial birth abortion ban. And what struck me was I'm not in a courtroom listening to legal arguments. I'm in a medical classroom listening to medical arguments because the description of what was done in partial birth abortion was graphic. There was no question that the, the court didn't understand what was going on. And tragically, by a sharply divided 5-4 vote they said the federal constitution protects, this is in 2000, wow. protects partial birth abortion. Now, the good news on that, so that was horrible, and that was my first case. And Don Stenberg, you know, a strong uh, evangelical, very pro-life, uh, he did his, uh, you know, best uh, argument that he could, but it wasn't persuasive to this court. And frankly, I don't know if anyone would have been able to convince the court because of the majority they had. Sure. The good news was, Seven years later, the Supreme Court got another case about the federal partial birth abortion ban, and by the same 5-4 but different, they said uh, you could ban, that the Congress could ban partial birth abortion. Now, I'd like to tell you that some profound change in medicine or law happened in seven years, but the only thing that happened was that the Supreme Court changed its personnel. Right. Uh, Justice O'Connor retired, and Justice Alito took her place, and 5-4 for partial birth, abortion went five four the other way, and that's not a way as a society to to run yourself by five four. No, points. and what this means is, if the court changes for the worse, from a pro-life perspective, we're one vote away or a couple of votes away from partial birth abortion being totally legal. So, so uh, you know, this is again another reason Roe should be reversed. We shouldn't be you know, breathlessly waiting to see who's on the court. Before Roe v. Wade, I can assure you that only lawyers and judges cared who was on the Supreme Court. But one of the ways abortion, and, and we in the pro-life community call it the abortion distortion factor, <laughs> one way abortion distorts reality is that it makes uh, who's on the court so critical. And again, we have a democracy. We're, 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 we're a republic where we have representatives. Why should five, you know, people decide these important issues. 
Uh, you have millions of people that agree with you, Nick. What are the most important things that you would like us to know about what the Bioethics Defense Fund does? Well, we're a public interest pro-life law firm. Uh, we fight in the areas of abortion, of course, the traditional pro-life area. But there's also other things that are important. The whole biotech field, cloning, animal-human hybrids, three-parent embryos. That's a whole area that people need to be aware of. And, of course, we deal with the end-of-life issues of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. And I think that uh, it's important when we work in the courts, although we primarily uh, advise people who are doing these cases directly or we file a friend of the court briefs. We work on model legislation and testify sometimes as experts in the state legislatures. But we do a lot of education. But the thing I think I want people to understand is there's hope in the midst of this darkness. Um, the younger generation is much more pro-life. I think the inherent contradictions of the evil of abortion are going to eventually force the court to send it back to the states. Now, that's not a perfect solution. Right. Lincoln had once said about slavery that the country couldn't be half free and half slave. Right. He thought eventually it'd be all one thing or all the other. But after 46 years, it would be progress to get the federal courts out of the issue. But there is hope. People are pro-life. I think the court's going to reverse Roe. And um, again, I want to go back to what I said uh, earlier. It was 246 years from the first slave in the New World to the end of slavery in the United States formally. It was 58 years from Plessy versus Ferguson to Brown versus Board of Education. At the end of the Civil War, that was 1865, to the Civil Rights Amendment was 99 years. That was 1964. So the point for people to remember is social reform movements, and abortion is clearly one of them, takes time in the United States. Nick, you have given um, us profound perspective, <clears throat> great insight, and I think we're going to have to have you back on again for some of these hot-button issues. Thank you so much for being with us, Nick Nikas of the Bioethics Defense Fund. Find them on their website at bdfund.org. You're back with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and I know that, Tom, our listeners are anxiously awaiting the Medica trivial question. Yes, so this was a multiple choice. I'm I'm going easy on you now. In 1970, four U.S. states legalized abortion on demand. Which one of these five states was not one of the four? Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, California, or New York? Chris, have dun, you lived dun, in dun, any dun. of these states? <laughs> I've lived in, no, I've not lived in any of these states. Nor have I. But uh, I suppose all of these would be... Uh, unlikely candidates, but it surprised me that California was the one that wasn't one of the first four. We see California usually being... Yeah, they're on the forefront of abortion now. Yes, they are. But no, they waited until a state referendum in November of 1972, uh, just months, two months before Roe v. Wade was uh, authored and uh, voted on by the Supreme Court. So now you know, California waited. Well, now... Uh, Sticking with the topic of law and morality, I was at uh, the Catholic Medical Association National Board Retreat in uh, late January, and uh, I was texted by our station uh, executive director uh, and producer of our show who said that parents aren't being allowed access to their children's medical records. And we were like, oh, this must be a mistake. But no, at the retreat was uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Michelle Stanford, a pediatrician in uh, Colorado, and she's going to set us straight on what the law really is, and it greatly surprised me. Michelle, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. You're welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me. Oh, certainly. Well, this topic came up uh, recently, as I mentioned earlier in the show, that now uh, parents don't have access to medical records of children who might be 12 years and, and older. It, that was a shock to me. Has this been around for a while, and is that truly practiced regularly? Um, yes, I think that it's you know the HIPAA privacy laws did change things or not change things. Uh, re had us look at it a little differently, but it has been something because adolescents can consent to some medical treatment by themselves. 
there is some limitation in parents' access to their records. But because of the um, electronic records, not having a harder time limiting that, I think that that changed things a little bit. The other thing that is important to note is 12 is the age that is considered the you know, age of consent for adolescents, but that probably is something, depending on the doctor, which age they, they sort of consider that to be an adolescent. So the 12 years does not vary from state to state, or might it vary between states? It does vary a little state to state, but most states the law says 12, but a doctor might interpret the maturity of a child to be maybe a young 12-year-old maturity and that they really couldn't have that, but it, it certainly the law says 12, but I think some doctors do interpret it differently. Does the consent refer only to sexual-related topics or to anything medically? It's um, only things that the adolescent can consent to without the parents. So it shouldn't be all of their records. It's only supposed to be those visits which pertain to things that they can consent to on their own. And could you go over for for our listeners, you sent me the list ahead of time, what those things are that a minor at the age of 12 can consent to? So it would be um, if they're financially independent, (laughs) um, which seems silly, doesn't it? But um, if it happens, if they're married and they're a minor, if they seek prenatal care, so if if a young girl is pregnant, she can seek care for herself without her parents' um, consent. Um, if she is, a, or actually, if both a, a minor male or female is a parent, they're considered emancipated. Um, and then the two are around sexual activity, so they can seek birth control without their parents' uh, consent, and they can seek treatment for sexually transmitted infections. And where did this list come from? Who devised it? And and so that might vary state to state. So that was something I looked at my state, but it's it's pretty much um, across the board pretty similar. Um, I actually think that there's it's state laws, and so um, I actually don't know where the list comes from other than the state laws. Okay. Well, the story that brought this to our attention was out of Iowa, and at University of Iowa, parents couldn't get their child's uh, blood test results. Now, if the blood test mm-hmm. results had nothing to do with these protected areas, was that a proper use in your eyes or your understanding of the the HIPAA privacy law? I would say no, it isn't. Um, I know that some hospitals, when they first get started with electronic records, have just a blanket. You can't get any access, but my understanding is that, that it shouldn't be uh, blanket access. I know that the my electronic records that I have is very specific to these events. So um, uh, from my understanding of the law, that um, is not accurate. So in your record system that you use, there is a way to, um, you know, put a fence around those uh, so-called yep. protected areas. Correct. And so there really is only limitation around those issues. So uh, what happens if one of those issues was the reason for a child to visit? Will that show up on a billing form that the parent receives? Yes. The bill will come, and uh, it may not, yeah, it it, it would say just the office visit, but it won't necessarily tell them why. So it won't have a diagnosis associated with it. Correct. Okay. But it is tricky. I've had adolescents request sexually transmitted um, infection testing, and I tell them that there isn't a way in that case it will come to the parents from the lab because I can't control what the lab releases. Ah. And so it will come to them on their bill that that's what they were tested for. So it can be somewhat tricky. So how do you, as a committed Catholic pediatrician, handle those patients who come into you as adolescents uh, with some of these, quote, protected uh, conditions? So I think that there's two um, kind of legs that the doctor has to, like, rely on. One is that it is important for an adolescent to have that trust in the doctor to, to you know, seek the correct care for them. 
Um, and so we have to be able to have that confidentiality. But I try to bring the parents in the discussion. I, I have to get the, their consent. But if maybe a difficult issue, they're probably struggling with something. Often if they are sexually active and I'm testing them for an infection, they might have had multiple partners. And so the parents really should know and be able to help them with what's going on. So I will try to approach it by saying, hey, how about I talk about this with your parent? Uh, most of the time, they're actually very willing to do that. Not always. And so if they don't allow me to, I do help them through the problem. But um, I really try to bring in the parent whenever possible because, you know, it certainly it does affect the whole family. Is this more common the older, the closer they get to the age of 18? Yes, definitely. So do you think that there are potential harms of these particular laws? Or do you think that the, the good outweighs the bad? Um, I would say that, yes. I mean, their intent is good and that the good, you know, what they're meant to do, if, it, if it's carried out correctly, um, is I don't think the intent is to keep the parents out of it. Um, I think that in some cases that does happen. Um, but I think it does have to be looked at appropriately and used appropriately. So in your particular uh, practice, have you gotten any complaints from parents that they didn't have access to something they wanted access to? I have not. Okay. So this alarming thing brought up in the news may well just be uh, an isolated event, not uh, a, a regular problem that that parents are having? I would hope so. I will say when we first started My Electronic Records, there, there was some kinks that had to be worked out. And I, I do think when they first started it, it was a blanket um, turn off for parents. And everybody kind of worked together to work out that that wasn't the way it should be done. So, um, you know, I think that it certainly is something that the community and hospitals have to constantly look at and do what's, you know, right for the patient. That's a good perspective on it, because so often these days in the culture wars, we just want to say that something is all good or all bad, uh, and there's a little more nuance to it. Now, how does this whole approach to things square, in your understanding, uh, with Catholic teaching on parental rights and responsibilities? Um, I would say that, you know, Catholic teaching is the parents are first and foremost educators in, of their child. And so, you know, that certainly um, is what I would support. Um, I do think that the, you know, some of the documents that the church has written, it talks about um, the education of their child can be helped by their community, people in their community. So I would see the physician in, the, in that role in this case. It's very important, though, for um, a parent to know where their doctor stands on these issues. Because you want to be going to someone who is going to be supporting your morals and values. And because the adolescent can seek care, particularly for things or, you know, contraception, you know, a doctor could, you know, do those things without a parent's consent in which, you know, for, for us as Catholics, that would not be something we would want to happen. So you need to know where your doctor stands. But understanding that that importance of that trust and that confidentiality that your child has in your doctor is also important. So the way to work through that is that you trust them too. That's so an excellent practical point that uh, we as parents need to choose the physicians that we trust for our children. We can't assume that uh, one size fits all for the morality of doctors. Yes. You know, and how have you seen in your practice where there is not great communication between parent and adolescent? Are there any tips that you can recommend to parents to improve communication with their adolescent children? So, yes, I mean, definitely that is something that can be very difficult. Sometimes parents just don't know how to bring the issues up or sometimes they feel they're not the right person to talk to them about these things. So I think the main thing I would say is you are. I mean, they really want to listen to you in these areas that so you really need to be talking about the issues, um, especially around morality and sexuality, because they want to hear what you have to say. 
So communication is very key, and um, you need to be the one talking to them about these things. And if you don't feel comfortable, you need to find somebody who will, whether it be the church, the youth group, the physician. Um, you know, I think my role, I feel like, is to facilitate those discussions and give them tools for them to do it at home because they really are the primary person to do it. Are there any, like, lines you give pay parents that they can just start with? Because sometimes the first series of words just doesn't come out of the mouth. Um, you know, I think you have to start the discussion early. And so, you know, certainly around puberty, that's a natural time when their body's changing. But even from young ages, you answer their questions. That's what I tell them, honest answers for honest questions. So you really just have to be honest with your kids, even from a young age, and answer their questions, um, you know, wh whatever they're asking. Michelle, any last words that you'd like to leave with our listeners? I just, you know, kids are great, and they really want your parents to be talking to them. So I'd say communicate with your kids. Michelle Stanford, pediatrician, Denver, Colorado, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor today. You're welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And please be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing chemicals in your environment that might be messing with your hormones. And we have pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Paul Haruz. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Straub, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.